Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motzen. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have the second part of our discussion on theonomy with James Jordan. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes. We'd love for you to follow us over there on YouTube as we are putting out weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture, and are currently in the midst of a series on the tabernacle with Alistair Roberts. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing theonomy. Whenever you do a Bible conference, one of the problems that you potentially run into is that the tape recorder will not start at the proper time. And the very first part of this lecture was not recorded. And so I want to put it here on the tape, and then suddenly we will be moving into the actual lecture as it was given. At the end of the last hour, the question was raised about the completeness of the law code that we have in the Bible. In other words, is it a law code, and how does it compare with other ancient law codes? Let me read to you a few comments that I put in my book, The Law of the Covenant, which is now out of print. These were from pages 69 and following, where I summarized the questions on this matter. In the first place, along these lines, we find that directly religious matters are mixed in with social matters in the law. And the Jewish commentator Umberto Casuto states, None of the aforementioned codes, that is, the pagan law codes, contains any law pertaining to the rituals of worship or to other religious matters. Their content is wholly secular. For religious subjects, separate, specific manuals were composed. And Shalom Paul, a scholar who has authored a book entitled The Studies in the Book of the Covenant in the Light of Cuneiform and Biblical Law, published in 1970, Shalom Paul says, Man's civil, moral, and religious obligations all ultimately stem from God, and hence are interwoven within a single corpus of divinely given law. These three realms, which in extra-biblical societies would be incorporated respectively in law collections, wisdom literature, and priestly handbooks, are here combined into one body of prescriptions. Secondly, and this is what we were talking about at the end of the last lecture, the content of the law given in the Pentateuch is incomplete if it is intended as a full-scale legal code. Umberto Casuto says that the Torah is very sparse in its treatment of most subjects as compared with the law books of the ancient Near East. He writes, Although the codes of the Eastern kings are also incomplete and do not include every branch of law, yet when they deal with a given subject, they enter into all its detail. A third point that we can make is that if the case laws, or these smaller laws, are designed as a judicial code, then they are incomplete as to form. Cosudo again remarks, quote, Another important distinction between state legislation and the Torah laws is to be seen in the fact that the form of the latter is not always that of a complete statute. They do not always state the penalty to be imposed on the transgressor. Sometimes only an absolute command or prohibition is enjoined as an expression of the absolute will of God. And so, those are characteristics of these smaller laws. Now, I also, in the lecture, read a little bit from the Code of Hammurabi, and I'll start in the Code of Hammurabi with number 11. If the owner of lost property has not produced witnesses attesting to his lost property, since he was a cheat and started a false report, he shall be put to death. 12. If the seller has gone to his fate, the purchaser shall take from the estate of the seller fivefold the claim for that case. 13. If the witnesses of that aristocrat were not at hand, 
the judges shall set a time limit of six months for him, and if he did not produce his witnesses within six months, since that aristocrat was a cheat, he shall bear the penalty of that case. Number 14. If an aristocrat has stolen the young son of another aristocrat, he shall be put to death. 15. If an aristocrat has helped either a male slave of the state, or a female slave of the state, or a male slave of a private citizen, or a female slave of a private citizen, to escape through the city gate, he shall be put to death. Number 16. If an aristocrat has harbored in his house either a fugitive male or female slave belonging to the state or to a private citizen, and has not brought him forth at the summons of the police, that householder shall be put to death. Number 17. If an aristocrat caught a fugitive male or female slave in the open and has taken him to his owner, the owner of the slave shall pay him two shekels of silver. Number 18. If that slave has not named his owner, he shall take him to the palace in order that his record may be investigated, and they shall return him to his owner. Number 19. If he has kept that slave in his house, and later the slave has been found in his possession, that aristocrat shall be put to death. Number 20. If the slave has escaped from the hand of his captor, that aristocrat shall so affirm by God to the owner of the slave, and he shall then go free. What we see in this is a whole series of very complete covering of cases in the case of a fugitive slave. And before that, the last part of uh, laws dealing with property. So Casuto's point is well taken, that if you look at an actual law code from the ancient Near East, you find that it's very complete as to form. All kinds of cases are covered. It's an attempt to be specific, not exhaustive, but certainly to cover all the cases. And biblical law is not that way. The Torah is something somewhat different. Then we move into the actual content of the lecture proper, and this is section D, or number 4. The question is, in what sense is the Torah binding? The theonomists particularly talk about that the law is binding in exhaustive detail. Well, what does it mean for the law to be binding? See, there is a fundamental difference between how we are going to be able to approach the law and how they would. The Old Testament Israelite believer had to understand what God had commanded before he could obey it, whether he understood what it meant or not. That is to say, he had to understand the actual content of the command, but whether he understood its meaning or not, he was supposed to do it. Now, that's different from the way the Gentile God-fearer and the New Covenant believer would respond to the law. We have to understand both what God has commanded and what it means in context before we know whether it applies to us or not. For instance, in the New Testament, we're told that women are not to be pastors in the church. Now, there are plenty of people around today who don't understand what that means and who don't like the idea and say, I can't figure out how that fits in, and so I'm not going to obey it. But the fact is, we understand that living in the New Covenant, that is a law that's binding on us, whether we understand it or not. But if we look over at Deuteronomy chapter 22 again, verses 8 to 11, we find laws that that's not clear at all. Deuteronomy 22, 8 to 11. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed that you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become holy. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You shall make for yourself tassels on the four wings of your garment with which you cover yourself. Now, are these laws binding on us today? Would they have been binding on an Old Covenant Gentile God-fearer in the Old Testament? When Jonah went to Nineveh and converted the Ninevites, were they supposed to take these laws up and do them? Well, the theonomists would tend to say 
Well, yes, they're binding, unless it's obvious that they're rescinded in the New Testament. I'm not sure exactly where these laws are explicitly rescinded in the New Testament. But one thing is for sure, we have to understand what they mean before we know whether they're binding on us or not. Is it still the case that we're not to plow with an ox and a donkey together? For the Israelite, he wasn't supposed to do it, period. But the Gentile outside of Israel would have to say, well, now, does that law refer to something that is peculiar to Israel as a nation of priests, or does it embody a universal moral principle so that we Gentiles should not plow with oxen and donkey yoke together? But we in the New Testament have to do that as well. And so there is a different psychological, a different logical and hermeneutical principle involved for us as them. And basically what it means is we are not under these laws in the same sense that Israel was under them. We are not bound to them in the same way that Israel was bound to them. And that's an important distinction, and it's one that's not made very often. Now, at this point, we'll join the lecture as I gave it in progress. God said it. you got to do it. And that applies here. It's a sin for you to wear material mixed with wool and linen. It's a sin for you to plant your vineyard with seed of the field, by which he interprets it's a sin to make hybrids. Now, is that true or not? The fact of the matter is we recognize that these commandments in the Old Covenant are in a somewhat different category. Before we can obey them, we have to understand them. Because unless we understand it, we don't know whether it applies to us or not. Now, that's a different mental activity. Now, if you'd lived in the Old Testament, you would have obeyed this whether you understood it or not. Just as we obey the command, women should not be pastors, whether we understand it or not. I think I understand why that's the case, but not everybody has been persuaded that my explanation is the right one. But we should all agree that that's part of the covenant we're under and we have to obey it. This is different, which means that when we approach the Old Testament, we can't just go and submit to it. There's no way we can go into the Old Testament and isolate out any parts of the commands and say, we submit to that without question, without investigation, without understanding, because it's in God's word and it's for us and we're under the same covenant. It won't work. We have to understand the law before we can obey it. Now, during the Old Testament period, the same thing would have been true for the nations outside of Israel. When Assyria converted to the Lord under Jonah and they wanted to change their laws and have a more righteous and just system, how much of the Mosaic law would they adopt and how much would they not? Were they supposed to build a temple to Yahweh in Nineveh? Another temple? So another Shekinah glory would take residence in it and have another altar and start having a Passover and circumcise themselves? Were they supposed to do that and become a second nation of priests? Would that aspect of the Mosaic law have applied to Jonah's Ninevites? No. But should they have instituted the death penalty for murder? regardless of who the person was committing the murder, regardless of whether he was a patrician or not? Should they have changed their laws that say, if a patrician murders a patrician, he shall be put to death, but if a patrician murders a commoner, he shall be flogged, and if a patrician murders a slave, he shall be fined? Should they have changed that law because they become converted? Yeah. But now how would they have understood reading the Mosaic Law, which to submit to and which they were bound to? Well, it's not the same as being an Israelite. The Israelite is directly bound to those laws, whether he understands them or not. The God-fearing Gentile is going to have to figure out 
looking at each individual case situation and the overall package, which dimensions transfer and which dimensions don't transfer. That's a different mental exercise, and it's closer to wisdom than it is to submission. Now, as soon as you understand that this applies to you, you got to do it. See? That's what the binding of the conscience means. But that's a different mental motion. Now, I would like for the theonomist to take that into account, because we're doing theology by sloganizing if we just say, well, everything in the Old Testament except the ceremonial law is binding. Well, what does that mean? How do we decide what's binding and what's not? We have to understand it all first. And we're not under it in the same way Israel was under it. And the Gentile nations outside of Israel could not have been under it in the same sense Israel was under it. So this word binding, the binding authority of the law is equivocal. It means one thing in one situation, something slightly different in another. Of course we're bound to everything in the Bible. If all scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness, then every jot and tittle from Genesis to Revelation we are bound to but not necessarily in the same sense at every point. We want to make that distinction. What about the Ten Commandments? Can't we isolate the Ten Commandments and say at least that stands enshrined as unchanging and inflexible? Not at all. We all know the Ten Commandments do not mean the same thing for us, they mean for Israel. We don't keep the Sabbath day holy. The Sabbath day is not the day we keep holy. This is the Sabbath day right here, the seventh day. We keep the first day holy. So we make an automatic mental adjustment. It's instinctive to us when we hear that commandment. We make an automatic mental adjustment to change it to a different day. Plus, what did it mean to keep the day holy in the Old Testament? Preeminently it meant you will not stoke up your own hearth fire on the Sabbath day, because if you do, you're to be put to death. Even if you gather wood to stoke up your hearth fire, you're to be put to death. Is that still true? Does God have a hearth fire burning out here on an altar that goes twice as bright on the Sabbath day and so ours has got to be reduced by comparison? Is that still going on? Is it a sin for you to put extra logs on your fire in the fireplace on Sunday? I don't think so. And see, what's happened is we've looked even at the Ten Commandments and what it implies and we've said, well, even here we do a certain amount of understanding before we submit. Now, once we understand what it means to us, then we submit. But it's not quite the same as... What a Jew would have done. Not quite the same. It's very similar, but not quite the same. So I want that distinction. I want to hear more from the theonomists on that. If we say the Mosaic laws are binding on nations today, that's really a very complex statement. And we need to be clearer on it. Bonson is somewhat unclear on the nature of case laws and what's meant by them. It's another aspect of this. Uh, in what sense is it binding? What are we talking about when we say mosaic case laws are binding, standing laws? Bonson seems to assume that everything outside the Ten Commandments is the judicial law. He says on page 102, these principles are illustrated in the judicial case laws. Top of page 103, he mentions the Old Testament case, parenthesis, judicial laws. And throughout the book, when he gives illustrations of what he means by judicial laws, frequently they're simply moral statements that are found throughout the warp and woof of the proper laws, the smaller laws. So there is equivocation on what's meant by binding and what's meant by standing laws. And if we're going to come to grips with the Bible and make it applicable, which we have to do, and if we're going to advocate the reformation of society according to the Bible, which we have to do, then we've got to have a hermeneutic that enables us to take these things into account. I don't see theonomy doing it, or at least not yet. So 
So, my next point is going to be to call into question Bonson's interpretation of Matthew 5, but there, are there any questions remaining from the last lecture or what I've said so far about some of the nebulous languages used and the need to refine it? Let's look at Matthew 5, 17 to 20. I was particularly interested to read this new book to see if in the course of it there was any change in Mr. Bonson's understanding of Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Now, he will maintain, and he does occasionally in this book, that you can have theonomy without Matthew 5. And in a sense, that's true. You can hold to his position without using these verses. But the fact of the matter is, he runs back to these verses continually in his argumentation. That these verses clearly establish a presumption of continuity instead of discontinuity. So we should presume total continuity between the Old Testament Torah and the New Testament situation unless we're explicitly told of a change. I don't think that works very well. And part of the reason is that I don't think Matthew 5 exactly is getting at that. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, we'll talk about some of the difficulties that Vern Poitras and others have raised. And I'll suggest to you what I think the better way to interpret this passage is. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Bonson would prefer the word confirm. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, neither a jot nor a tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Bonson in Theonomy, his original book, spends close to 100 pages arguing that the word fulfill in verse 17 implies and means put into force or confirm. So the verse should be paraphrased. I didn't come to do away with the law, but to institute it, to cause it to stand, to put it into force. And that's a reasonable translation. We'll get to a little bit of the difficulty in a minute. Verse 18, however, goes on to say, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, neither a jot nor a tittle shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished, which would seem to indicate there comes a time when it does change. And why would it change then? Why would God's law change at the end of time in history? That's a good question, and it's one that is not addressed. Now, there are two problems that afflict this approach to the passage, which is basically that Jesus says every jot and tittle in the Old Testament stands in force until the end of time, until the second coming, except those that don't. And the way we know the jots and tittles that don't apply anymore is that the New Testament explains them. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. It's obvious that a lot of the jots and tittles have passed away. We don't keep the sacrifices. We don't keep the laws of uncleanness. We don't keep the laws of mixed cloth. Bonson would reply to that, as I just indicated, getting ahead of myself. Some have passed away and some haven't. So what this really means is, until heaven and earth pass away, neither a jot nor a tittle shall pass away, except those that do pass away, until all it is accomplished. But that imports something to the text that's not there and is not really obviously implied. What we're left with is a kind of a hyperbole. Jesus is saying, well, everything stays in force, and then we're supposed to take this the same way we take, if your hand offends, you chop it off. If your eye offends, you pull it out. Kind of a hyperbolic statement. A statement that by itself just indicates how we ought to feel about the law, and we ought to go to other places to figure out exactly how it works. 
But that doesn't help us any. Everybody could agree with that. That's not distinctive to theonom. Another problem that has been raised is that the word fulfill in verse 17 is not the word you would expect if all that the passage is saying is what Bonson says it means. You would expect the Greek word histemi, or a form of it there. I did not come to abolish the law, but to cause it to stand. Instead, you have a word, fulfill, that is used everywhere else for the fulfillment of prophecy. So it would seem to indicate that there's an idea of fulfilling the typology and prophecy of the Old Testament here as implied. Now, Bonson's reply to that is, it's obvious that Matthew 5-7 through 7 is a law passage. It's not talking about prophecy. It's talking about law. Jesus is saying, get rid of this oral law tradition, stick with the written law that God gave in the Old Testament, who cleans up what the Pharisees say, he republishes the law, and so in this context, it's not talking about a fulfillment of prophecy, it's talking about law. On page 321, he discusses that. Let's see if I want to read that. Yeah, Vern Poitras is the one who brings this up. Poitras wants to say that fulfill in Matthew 5.17 should be assimilated to the other uses of fulfill in Matthew where it applies to prophecies of the Old Testament. But, says Bonson, the specific context of the Sermon on the Mount simply does not deal with Old Testament prophecies, even though they are surely found elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. We get into real trouble when we overlook the obvious. Poitras and others who try to import prophetic typological nuances into the word fulfill in Matthew 5.17 are doing just that importing preconceived ideas into the text and context rather than reading them out of the text. Even when one's theological conclusions are orthodox, this is not exegesis. The violence done to the context of Matthew 5.17 by importing prophetic and typological objects of fulfillment is astounding, obvious to any simple reader. Jesus there deals with ethical directives and lifestyle among his followers. We must go elsewhere in Matthew's writing to find the typological and prophetic emphasis upon which Poitras chooses to focus. Now, let me put myself in Poitras' shoes and say, law and prophecy are not as different as they're being made out here. All of the law proclaimed Christ and pointed forward to him. And it's not necessarily true at all that there is no prophetic aspect to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'm going to argue in just a minute that I think there is. And I think that a proper understanding of this passage will do justice to the reason why fulfill is used here rather than cause to stand and do justice to what Poitras is trying to point out. Poitras doesn't deny that Jesus is coming to confirm the law. He does confirm it, but he says there's more to it than that. It's confirm and also fulfill in the sense that what the Old Testament was talking about now receives its final prophetic typological culmination. Let me read this a different way now, in a way that I think it should be read. Verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets and come to do away with them, I didn't come to abolish, but to bring them into their fullness. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, which is going to happen at the cross, and not at the end of history, and this is the important exegetical watershed, neither a jot nor a tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if the horizon of verse 18 is not the second coming, but the passing of the old heavens and earth with the coming of the new covenant, then you can take this verse literally. Then when it says every jot and tittle is being brought into force and will not pass away, it means exactly that. It means the old covenant without any modification. 
It doesn't mean jots and tittles except for those that have passed away, which is what Bonson has to paraphrase this to mean. It means exactly that, all the jots and tittles. Ceremonies, laws of cleansing, laws of separation, laws of mixtures, laws of rounding the corner of the beard, whatever that means, and we don't even know what that means. We're not even sure how to translate that verse. Whatever all those things meant, every bit of it is going to be brought into force at this point in history. But it's going to change at the cross. That's when heaven and earth pass away. And I'll argue that. I'm not going to try to prove that in depth today because I have argued it at length in my book, Through New Eyes. But I think that that is what Bonson misses in this verse. And it does have an eschatological horizon. So then he says in verse 19, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's coming right now. The kingdom of heaven is open and everybody's pressing into it. The kingdom of heaven doesn't come at Pentecost exactly. It's already come in Jesus. Whoever guards and teaches these is great in the kingdom. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now is the day they need to enter the kingdom. Now, what I'm about to say, I think, to really develop would take a long time. And all I can do is give you an outline or the gist of the way I think the argument would go. But if we're going to purify our interpretation of Matthew 5, and I think provide an alternative to what Greg has done, and one that I think is going to be more helpful to us in understanding the law, this is how I would do it. Consider the rest of the gospel history. What does Jesus do in the gospels? How does he fulfill the law? How does he bring it into the fullest exposition? How is the law clarified and brought to its greatest point? How is the old covenant made operative in a way never before? Well, first of all, right here in Matthew 5-7, to Jesus corrects all this false teaching. He clarifies what the law says. And this is something that is eschatological. Now, at the end of the Old Covenant, the law is clarified as it never was before. Another thing Jesus does throughout the Gospel is he heals people. Now, we're used to thinking of those healings as just, oh, wow, healings. Wow, Jesus heals a blind man, now everybody will believe him. Wow, Jesus raises a person from the dead, now everybody will believe him. Wow, a woman with 12 years of issues of blood touches him and she's cleansed, now everybody will believe him. That's not really what's going on in the Gospels. To understand the healings in the Gospels, you need to read Leviticus 21, where the specifications for the priests in Israel are laid out. A priest may not be blemished. He may not be blind. He may not be deaf. If you touch a dead person, you're unclean. You can't be a priest. If you're dead, you're unclean. You can't be a priest. If you have issues of blood, you're unclean. If you have leprosy, you're unclean. What Jesus does is he goes through Israel and he restores the nation as a nation of priests. He cleanses them so that now they are fit That's an event. That's why these things don't necessarily continue to happen after that. They have a purpose. The nation is reconstituted and restored as a nation of priests. Those who could not have access to God because they were unclean are made clean. Those who are dead are made alive. Those who are blemished and could not serve are healed so that they can serve. You know, Jesus doesn't lengthen legs. He doesn't do a lot of things. He doesn't heal people who have cancer. The kinds of healings that you have are the kinds that are listed in the Old Testament as disqualifying people. Now, that's prophetic and typological, you see. There's a reconstitution of the nation. Jesus forgives sins. He corrects false teaching. He restores the nation as a nation of priests by healing them and reconstituting them in that perfect physical outward form they had to have. Third, he forgives their sins. We see masses of people enter the kingdom, 5,000 here, 4,000 there. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and is recognized by the crowds. He goes to the temple. He cleanses the temple of leprosy. 
There are all kinds of parallels between Leviticus 14 and the leprosy in the house and what Jesus does in the temple. He takes his seat in the temple. In other words, he fulfills the law. Everything the Old Testament said needed to be comes to pass, in a sense. And I think that means that Matthew 5 through 7 is not just a law passage that you can extract and say, okay, these are laws. It's a law passage that fits at a particular time in history where Jesus corrects, purifies, implements, brings to pass, and fulfills the Old Covenant law. There is a fulfilling that is going on. What the law described as the kingdom of God is brought into being in its Old Covenant form. Physically perfect people having access to God, the Messiah enthroned in the temple, the temple cleansed, the law fixed, and now comes the great dramatic moment. Because given all these advantages, it's these people who reject him. And this is one more fall, you see. In the Old Testament, every time God gave the people the kingdom, the next story tells us that they fell. The minute David was made king and his kingdom was established, the next story is his seizing of forbidden fruit. The minute Saul becomes king, the next story is his fall. The minute Israel is given the law at Mount Sinai, the next story is their fall into sin. Read the book of Ezra. The minute the city is finished and they have the Feast of Tabernacles and the walls are built, they start marrying strange women. Every time the kingdom is built and constituted, they reject it and fall. And the climax of that is here. The nation is reconstituted, the law is republished, everything is fixed up, and now everybody, all the way to Peter, reject him with a greater clarity of vision than ever before. It's clear who Jesus is. And the more they know who he is, the more they reject him. See, men hate God. So the more clear it was that Jesus was God, the more they hated him. And that's the climax of this. So that everything the law described as punishment is fulfilled in Christ. Now, that brings the jots and tittles to an end. That brings the heavens and the earth to an end. That is the fulfillment of everything. Now we have a new heavens and an earth. And we are no longer in law to Moses. We are in law to Christ. And we're students of Moses. As the epistles repeatedly express it. And see, I haven't developed that in detail. To develop all that would take a lot of time. And maybe it wouldn't work as well as I think it would. But I want to offer that as an alternative way of looking at this verse. I think the passing of the heavens and the earth is in the first century. I think Jesus, when he said every jot and tittle is in force, meant every jot and tittle. Not just some of them, all of them, including the ceremonies. I think they were in force until the cross and Pentecost. Now, what about them afterwards? Well, the New Testament indicates to us that all Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness, so all these jots and tittles are still profitable for instruction in righteousness. But that's not what Matthew 5 is getting at, I don't think. I think it is getting at something that's redemptive historical. All of it applies. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount applies to us. But it had a particular reference for them. Anything on that controversial assertion? I wanted to get your comments on Luke 16. It's a parallel passage in some ways, but maybe you can make your point better. Okay, Luke 6, yeah. 14 Okay, Luke 16. Yeah. Thank you. Luke 16, 14 and following. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things. They were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone's forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or a letter of the law to fail. 
So it does seem to be the same implication there. Redemptive historical context. Yeah. That's an obvious redemptive historical context. And then it goes right on to talk about divorce and remarriage as well. So you would see the references to divorce and remarriage possibly to God and Israel and God and the church uh, by implication. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be fun to look at that in more detail. Okay. Also Luke twenty four forty four. Luke 24:44. He said to them, "These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are spoken about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." There again would be the same idea. But see, the fulfilling of these things, the climax of the old covenant in the Gospels, the new covenant is the old covenant dead and resurrected. Jesus becomes the impersonation of the old covenant. In his death, the old covenant dies. In his resurrection, it comes to life again in a transformed way. You've got the same things, but with a difference. The problem is this continuity-discontinuity thing that we'll get to a little bit later on. Okay, I've offered you an alternative explanation. The odd thing is that others have offered this kind of approach to Matthew 5. Poitras doesn't see the passing away of heavens and earth in the first century, so I don't think his answer to Bonson works very well. But others have argued that, but Bonson doesn't take it up. I think that he needs to. He needs to come to grips with this alternative way of looking at it if he's going to continue to argue as he has. So that's a problem. Now let me move to a sixth question, difficulty, problem, challenge to theonomy that we as biblical theocrats can make. This could be an in-house discussion. If we don't critique ourselves and take second and third looks at this, nobody's going to. So we need to do it. We need to be the ones to do it. This, I see, is one of the major problems in Bonson's position, and that is the problem of what he calls a restorative law. Bonson suggests and urges that we not refer to the ceremonial law, but to the restorative law. And in discussing in his point-by-point summary of the theonomic position, he explicitly says something that I think is quite erroneous along these lines. I don't know if I'm going to find it. Here we are. Number two. Since the fall, it has always been unlawful to use the law of God in hopes of establishing one's personal merit and justification. Well, it was wrong before the fall, too. This was never the purpose of the law at all. But that's not the one I wanted. Well, forget it. His position, as you know if you know theonomy, is that the ceremonial law only comes into play as a result of the fall. So that the laws of sacred geography are post-lapsarian. That means after the lapse or after the fall. They're not pre-lapsarian. You don't have sacred geography. You don't have sacred time and sacred calendar before the fall. And that's just not the case. These things were present in the creation. And it's also not the case that the ceremonial law is in any way unique in being phrased in a post-lapsarian Fashion. In other words, let me back up and try to make this clearer. In the Old Testament, when we read the laws of sacred geography and we read the laws of sacred calendar, they're all expressed in terms of sin and repentance. They presume that man has fallen and these are ways back into salvation. That's the way they're written. But so is the moral law. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter against them. These things are written in a context of sin. All the law, judicial, moral, and ceremonial, is written to a situation of fallen man. But 
It's also true that all three dimensions of the law, and I'll argue that there are three, are found before the fall. Now, Boston's position makes it easy for him, you see. Anything that points to the cross is gone, and anything else remains. I think if we take a careful look at Genesis 1 and 2, we find the situation isn't so easy. The new creation changes the laws of geography and time. Now, let me show you where these are. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, this is part of the first heavens and the earth, the old creation. We have a new creation, and I argue a new heavens and a new earth. But listen to Genesis 1.14, as it is in Hebrew. Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for festival times and for days and years. Now, you've always heard that signs and seasons, and in your mind, the seasons are spring, summer, fall, and winter. But that's not what the Hebrew says. It says festival times, which always in the Old Testament means the times of special worship. And it's true that throughout the Old Testament, the sun and the moon mark out the times of special worship. You worship according to the moon. You watch the phases of the moon. And every time there's a new moon, you have a worship time. And then the 15th day, after the first new moon of the year, you start the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And you count 50 days from the Sabbath in that week, and you come to Passover. In the seventh month, the first day is not only a new moon celebration, but a day for blowing trumpets. You count ten days from that moon, and you have the Day of Atonement. You count five more days, and you start the Feast of Tabernacles. The moon regulates the whole thing. And the sun regulates it, because the sun tells you when the first month is. You're going to know which month of the year you're in, according to the rising and setting of the sun, in its annual spring, summer, winter, fall cycle. The sun rises and falls along the horizon making days shorter and longer. That regulates the festival times, and that was set up not at the fall of man and not with Moses, but in Genesis 1, and it's changed now. In the New Covenant, the physical universe does not regulate the time of worship. The time of worship is exclusively regulated by man. We're no longer children under tutors. We regulate the time of worship by counting seven days. And there's nothing in the world to mark it out. The moon doesn't mark out seven days. The sun doesn't mark out seven days. That's why your January 1st is a different day of the week every year. <laughs> the cycle of the sun's got nothing to do with days of the week, nor does the moon. The moon doesn't go 28 days, it's 28 and some odd, so it gets off. It's exclusively human to mark out Sabbath times, the Sabbath day. And that's all that's left according to the Reformed faith, and I think it's right in the New Testament as far as we are bound. We're supposed to worship on the Lord's day, which we count. Because the Son of Man, and in union with Him, we are lords of the Sabbath. We mark it out. It's not marked out for us by creation clocks. Those clocks are still there, but they don't mark out festival times. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying against Bonson that that kind of thing didn't come in at the fall. It's a creation thing. The fall qualified it. Same is true of sacred geography. Genesis chapter 2 tells us, Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold, etc. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, what that passage establishes for us is that there was one land that was central in the world, and all the others, the rivers flowed out of the central land to the other lands. There was not a river that arose in Havilah and watered the garden of Havilah. 
There wasn't a river that arose in Cush and watered the land of Cush. There was one central sanctuary land, and its river went out and watered the other inferior lands. Now, we're used to thinking of that pattern with Israel in the center of the nations and the influence of the Old Testament form of the gospel going out as rivers to the other nations of the world, as Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests. That's the picture. But that geographical picture with only one central sanctuary and only one temple on the earth and only one place where people could meet with God in a special way, that's not something that came in as a result of the fall. That's a creation design. And if it's changed in the New Testament, it means that this whole creation pattern that was established has been superseded. In terms of cosmic order and structure, we're in a new creation. In terms of physical substance, we're not. But in terms of the organization of time and space, we are in a new creation. We're also in a new creation as far as the organization of people is concerned. In the Old Testament, you have genealogy to establish that everybody comes from the first Adam. In the new creation, you don't. We are not in-lawed anymore to the first Adam, but to the second. So the personnel, the organization of persons, the organization of time, and the organization of space has changed, not from Moses to the New Testament, but from Genesis 1 to the New Testament. Now, that's a little bit sophisticated, but it's important. Because, you see, we are already in the eternal life. Essentially, this new organization is the organization of heaven. And legally and judicially, we have experienced the most important resurrection and transformation that counts. When you die and go to heaven and get your new body, that's secondary to what you have when you experience a spiritual resurrection. Which one is more important? Going from death to life or getting a new body? Which is the consequence of which? You see, the definitive change is the one that happens judicially, structurally, in history. And then the rest of it is the outflow. The fact that this physical universe will be transformed, that we will get transfigured bodies, that's an outflow of what happened in history in 30 AD. And so the change of the structure of the world is the change from the old creation into the final creation. And now we just have the outworking of that. The first outworking is calendars changed, geography has changed, we're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. That change takes place. Now that's an important qualification because it means that Bonson in his position has not properly apprehended what the ceremonial law is at all. It's a series of specifications of these things. And the new covenant doesn't just return us. And I don't know exactly what that means in terms of cash value to the interpretation of particular laws, but it does strike a blow at his whole system. It makes it a little bit more complicated. It introduces questions about other dimensions and aspects of the Mosaic Revelation than he is going to be alert to. Because it's not just the laws as they reflect sinfulness that have changed. It's the laws as they reflect the cosmic structure of the first creation that have changed. So... One of the problems that I've always had with theonomy, and I have more now than I used to have, but this has been one of the major ones, is that is Bonson's strong insistence that the ceremonial laws are only restorative laws. All they really were designed to do is point to the cross, and then they're gone. Now, they did a lot more than that. And they were moral laws. For those people at that time, that's how God intended for them to live in that world. We don't live in that world, and it's not how God intends for us to live in this world. And there may be, you see, something to the fact that in the Holy Land, 
certain crimes were punished more severely than they would have been punished in one of the outlying lands because of the structure of the world. It may be that in Jonah's converted Ninevites should not have put people to death for some of the things that Israelites were supposed to be put to death for because of their different situation. And that's not just a mere ceremonial or restorative idea. It's something that's built into the structure of the world in that age. I haven't answered a question there. I've just raised it. I've raised a hermeneutical consideration. And that's what we're dealing with. You want to ask any questions about that? We'll move to the next point. Okay. If I don't want to answer it, I won't answer it. Well, the obvious thing in my mind, being a subscriber to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, that raises all kinds of questions in my mind about the traditional ways of dividing and distinguishing between the covenants, covenant works, and covenant grace. And I guess my question is, do you think this is a, a perspective that helps, that can be overlaid and underlaid with other perspectives like, like the traditional perspective or is this something that's pretty much going to attack and eat up the other perspective? The question is, what about the traditional reformed understanding of the covenant of works and the, the overarching covenant of grace between the old and new covenants where you don't have as radical a transformation as I'm talking about? The seminary I studied at, all of these things were considered as up for debate. And I guess I am of the school of thinking from Westminster that there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done about that. What the Westminster Confession is getting at by that language of overarching covenant of grace and two dispensations is true. But is that the best way to express the truth they're trying to get at? And I have questions about that. I'd rather say old covenant, new covenant, which is what the Bible says. Old covenant is in Adam, new covenant is in Christ. Old covenant receives many specifications in the Old Testament. Old Covenant always included the Sabbath idea, which is redemptive after the fall. So I'm happier with that way of doing it, but it's a way of getting at the same idea. But one of my professors in doing different kind of covenant theology that's more common in the Skilder churches in the Netherlands, what I'm talking about would be more common there. There was such a brouhaha about what he was teaching that he had to leave. So I see this whole area is up for grabs. And I don't know how the churches would enforce that particular system of language in the Westminster Confession. You have to use that language or you just have to agree with what it's getting at. So you can say it's perspectival, but part of the question in biblical theology is why doesn't the Bible say it that way? Why does it say it this way? I don't know if that answers your question. It talks around it a bit. Well, it's obvious that reading Bosnia is, you know... Quite at home. In the, yeah, and that's the underlying and part of this whole argument is the whole informed perspective, and that's why dispensationalists have such a hard time, or even non-covenantal people that aren't at home in the Westminster Confession have such a problem with these arguments. Mm-hmm. Because you see it all through. I, that is a good point you're raising here. I'm just wondering where it's yeah. going to go. Well, it's like if you have a simplistic covenant theology that says baptism is circumcision. We baptize babies because babies were circumcised in the Old Testament, and you don't go beyond that, then you've left a whole lot of questions unanswered. Because why weren't girl babies circumcised? Why didn't believers outside of Israel seem to do it? Why wasn't it done at the Noahic period? If the Old Testament church is identical to the New Testament church, and circumcision is just changing to baptism, and that's all there is to it, 
but there's more considerations than that, so you always have to make adjustments in your system. I don't know. Okay, let me start into the next one. Number eight is the question of the nations outside of Israel. Were the nations outside of Israel obliged to keep the Mosaic judicial laws? I've already expressed the fact that they could not have submitted to the Mosaic laws in exactly the same way Israel could have because they would have had to study it and understand it before they would have known exactly what applied and what didn't. Bonson, however, argues that the distinction between what applied and what didn't would have been easy to separate. Anything that's ceremonial and restorative, that doesn't apply. The other things do, that's not hard. And he argues that, then he argues that they should have kept the penalties of the law. Nations outside of Israel should have kept the judicial law. The difficulty is that throughout his writing, I only find evidence, Bonson only adduces evidence, that the nations outside of Israel were under the moral law of God and under the judgment of God. To my knowledge, there is no evidence that Gentile nations were obliged to follow the Mosaic judicials, the penalties. You find out that God says, I'm going to judge the Assyrians because they're cruel. Well, God is going to judge them. God says, I judge the Canaanites because they were Sodomites. God judged them. What we need is a verse that says, I am angry with the Assyrians because they didn't put homosexuals to death. I am angry with the Babylonians because they didn't have fivefold restitution for the ox and fourfold restitution for the sheep. You see the difference? We need evidence that shows that the nations outside of Israel were supposed to keep the same penalties as the Israelites were supposed to do. Not that they were supposed to behave the same way, because there's a clear difference between behavior on the one hand and punishment on the other. And I see what I've done here is skip the seventh section, which I better go back to. I'm sorry about this for the sake of your notes, because what I've got to do first is deal with the question of moral laws and judicial laws, because that's another real weakness in Bonson's approach, and one that sets him apart from the whole history of the church in this area, and it's one that he's either right or wrong about, I think he's wrong. So I'm sorry, sorry for the glancing at the wrong place in my notes. Let's do that for a few minutes and then we'll take a break. The seventh line of question for Bonson's theonomic position is, Bonson says that there is no category difference, no category difference should be introduced between what we think of as judicial laws and moral laws. Murder is wrong, and the death penalty for murder is right. Kidnapping is wrong. The death penalty for kidnapping is right. And those are both moral laws, and they're in the same category. Now, historically, the church has distinguished between ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws. Moral laws are the ones that tell you right from wrong. The judicial laws are the ones that tell you how to punish people who sin. The church punishes by excommunication. The family punishes with the rod, and the state punishes with capital punishment and other things. Now that system of punishments, according to the historic church, is a different idea than the idea of what is right and what is wrong. And the reason is, some things that are wrong are not supposed to be punished. God says, I'll deal with them. Now, I think that there's a clear difference between moral laws and judicial laws. I think common sense indicates it. It's obvious that there's a difference between the punishment for something and the sin itself. You can run them together, but you can also run together the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was moral for Israel. They were supposed to do it. 
So if you remove the categories between moral and judicial, I think you've got to remove the categories between ceremonial and moral too. It would have been immoral for an Israelite to mix seed. He's disobeying God. But we say the reason for that law has to do with sacred geography and the position of Israel at that stage in history, which we're not under. It would have been immoral for an Israelite not to punish apostasy with the death penalty. But there again, we can distinguish between that disobedience, a failure to enforce the judicial law, from the sin of apostasy itself. I've discussed that at length in my paper on the death penalty and the Mosaic Laws, and I'm just going to refer to you there. You can also think about the fact that the covenant itself in the Bible, when it's laid out, is often laid out in sections, commonly in five sections. More has been made out of that than should have been, but it's present some places. The covenant involves a declaration of who the covenant maker is. Secondly, it involves a statement of the transition into the covenant. Third, there are stipulations of the covenant. Fourth, there are sanctions of the covenant. And they're different things. The moral requirements are the third section. The punishments threatened and the rewards offered are the fourth section. They're different things. We can see that there's a difference implied in the Bible itself in the fact that under the Noahic covenant, only murder was punished by death. Under the Mosaic covenant, other things were. Whereas under the Noahic covenant, the same things were right and wrong morally. It was immoral to commit adultery under the Noahic covenant. But it wasn't punished by death. Under the Mosaic covenant, it's immoral to commit adultery and it's punished by death. The moral things obviously don't change. The judicial things obviously can change. Now, Bonson just totally mixes these things up, and that's part of his position. You see, if, if he can demonstrate that the judicial laws and the moral laws are really in the same category, then the entire question of the penalties of the Old Testament law is settled. But this hasn't convinced anybody. It hasn't convinced the other theologians who interact with him. And I think the reason is that there is a difference between the two, and it's fairly obvious, I am. I read these passages earlier in the lecture in a different section where he conflates the judicial laws with the case laws. For instance, on page 255, theonomic ethics does indeed see the distinction between the Decalogue and the judicial laws, that is, the case laws. We see many case laws are not judicial, as we saw last time when we were looking at these laws. Chapter 22 of Deuteronomy. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. Well, that's not judicial because there's no punishment involved there. It doesn't say if you fail to bring them back, you're to be flogged. That would be judicial. That would be a penal law. That would be a sanction. But it's not there. This is just an exposition of the moral law. So I think the distinction is there and I'm convinced that we've got to make that distinction somehow and pay more attention to it. Let's take a break now. I want to come back at the end and having critiqued Bonson's approach, come back around and say, now what can we say? Because I don't want to leave the impression I'm taking everything away and leaving nothing back. Practically speaking, I think we'd be close to where he is. But I don't think he gets us as far as we need to get. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.